if the Equality Act had been working effectively, there wouldn't have been any litigation. So to be clear, Hong Kong equality already fell far short of addressing inequality, even in so-called normal times. You're listening to Rights Up, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Christy, podcast producer at the Oxford Human Rights Hub, and in collaboration with Shreya Artre, Associate Professor in International Human Rights Law at the University of Oxford, we're putting together a special four-part series on equality law in times of crisis. In episode one, we looked at how pre-existing inequalities have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 crisis, turning into what we might like to call exponential inequalities. Now, I want to know if equality law and equality-related legislations and policies are set up to tackle these exponential inequalities that we've been hearing about. And if not, then why not? In 2020, Katie Rowley, a hearing-impaired woman, launched a claim against the UK government for the lack of sign language interpreters at the daily coronavirus briefings, claiming this breached the UK Equality Act 2010. Here's Anna Lawson with a brief recap of the Equality Act. Anna works as Professor of Law at the University of Leeds and is Joint Director of the Multidisciplinary Centre for Disability Studies. So the Equality Act replaced a range of um, single protected characteristic legislation, one of which was the Disability Discrimination Act 1995. And the Disability Discrimination Act 1995 started life um, with some huge emissions, including education and transport and employers with less than 20 employees. Um, those gaps gradually got filled and the Equality Act was an opportunity to reflect on further gaps, um, further ways in which um, the disability discrimination legislation could be strengthened as part of um, bringing it together with law prohibiting sex discrimination, race discrimination, etc. Okay, so Katie Rowley was claiming that the UK government was breaching this act by not having sign language interpreters at the daily coronavirus briefings. And she won the case. As reported by Disability Rights UK, the judge ruled that the lack of provision, the provision of subtitles only, was a failure of inclusion, suggestive of not being thought about, which served to disempower, to frustrate and to marginalise. So does this mean that the UK Equality Act 2010 is fit for purpose? So the Covid crisis was a really good lens through which to think about the effectiveness of the Equality Act. If the Equality Act had been working effectively, there wouldn't have been any litigation. Um, so in that sense, we can say the Equality Act didn't meet its um, objectives. But like anything, the answer's not so simple. There's some nuance hiding here, which I'll get to a little later on. But for now, I just want to stick with why the Equality Act isn't meeting its objectives. Back to Anna Lawson. I think it's fair to say from a disability perspective, there's been, for many disabled people and their organisations, a certain level of disappointment associated with the effectiveness of this act. The disappointment, I think, is reflected in a House of Lords 
report, a House of Lords committee report in 2015, which looked back at the first five years of the Equality Act and considered its impact and effectiveness from a disability perspective. So a lot of the problems they identified were lack of awareness, lack of understanding of duty bearers and disabled people of what the relevant rights and obligations were. And I think there was some concern that losing a disability specific enforcement body, so it was a Disability Rights Commission before the Equality and Human Rights Commission, losing that and having a much more restricted budget under the new commission was, was partly um, the reason for this um, levels of awareness not increasing as much as had been hoped. Anna goes on to tell us that not having a particular disability commission anymore meant that it was difficult to know where to go to find information. This would often end with people searching through the guidance on all of the protected characteristics, such as race, gender, sexual orientation, to find the parts that spoke about disability, which was challenging and time-consuming. According to Anna, cuts to legal aid funding also made it difficult for people to get advice on their legal rights. But let's get back to that nuance I promised. The Equality Act has also been positive to an extent. Without the Equality Act, I think disabled people would have been in a much worse position. And it was really the proactive elements of the Equality Act that we were particularly useful. So it was the anticipatory or the ex-ante reasonable adjustment duty that was, that was relied on. The anticipatory nature of this duty essentially puts the responsibility on service providers and public bodies to think in advance about accessibility and take reasonable steps to make sure disabled people aren't at a disadvantage. So it was particularly useful in the context of a crisis because it meant that, well, A, it focused attention on the fact that they should be thinking about disabled people on an ongoing basis and avoiding introducing new barriers, new obstacles, new disadvantages into what they were doing. There were like 700 people at one point who were bringing cases against supermarkets based on their failures to make anticipatory reasonable adjustments to how how their shops, how their online systems worked in order to make them accessible and inclusive of disabled people. And similarly, there were 300 people who were bringing cases against the government for failing to make its public health information accessible to sign language users. So very interesting because we hadn't had that mass group reliance um, on, on the anticipatory duty to bring the same type of case before COVID. So it, the, the fact that there was an emergency and people were experiencing the same sort of problem at the same time catalyzed the the potential of this duty to to really support group group actions so this is fascinating the widespread and urgent nature of the crisis led to group action like never before and perhaps in the process made more people aware of the rights of disabled people so at the same time as the uk equality act wasn't meeting its objectives it was suddenly in the limelight But what happens if there are multiple compounding crises happening at the same time, which, let's face it, is going to occur? 
After all, crises don't tend to wait patiently for their turn. So actually, in normal times, um, equality law is not necessarily the best way to address complex disadvantage. But in times of crisis, and especially in times of intersecting or multiple or concurrent crises, it becomes even more difficult. Kelly Loper is Associate Professor and Director of the Human Rights Programme at the University of Hong Kong. Kelly's examining whether equality law in Hong Kong is set up to deal with the complex reality of disadvantage in a country where the COVID-19 pandemic has collided with a political crisis. Spoiler, she's finding there's a lot left to be desired. So, to be clear, Hong Kong equality already fell far short of addressing inequality, even in so-called normal times. So for example, the race discrimination ordinance expressly excludes direct and even indirect racial discrimination based on a person's nationality or immigration status. So it's not possible to challenge an action or omission related to nationality, even if it indirectly has a disproportionate and negative impact on a particular ethnic group. And now let's add in COVID-19. Another issue with this exception for nationality and immigration status is that immigrants coming from mainland China and the border between mainland China and Hong Kong actually very much resembles an international border. And immigrants coming to Hong Kong from mainland China are apparently excluded from protection from discrimination on the basis of their immigration status or on the basis of their origin. Um, And early in the pandemic, we saw that many restaurants um, put up signs saying that people from mainland China could not eat there, um, or they would say people who speak Mandarin Chinese, which is distinct from Cantonese, which is the predominant dialect in Hong Kong, could not enter the restaurant and um, could not be patrons of, of the restaurant. And on top of this, let's add in an ongoing political crisis. And this was also linked, actually, to some of the the political crises that happened at the end of 2019 and early 2020, um, when there was quite a lot of hostility against the Chinese government. And many businesses actually took sides in the street protests that were happening. So some were more pro-government and others were more pro-protester. And it seemed that many of the restaurants that took a political side in favor of the protests actually, and perhaps somewhat ironically, were the ones who were discriminating against um, mainland Chinese. I should also add that we have a constitutional right to equality in Hong Kong. And in a number of landmark cases, our Court of uh, Final Appeal, which is our apex court in Hong Kong, has started to develop a substantive equality doctrine. But so far, the courts have not really necessarily applied the substantive equality doctrine very consistently. And I think they have missed a number of opportunities to identify intersectional discrimination experienced by migrant domestic workers, for example, and other immigrant groups. And circling back now to one of the very first examples of exponential inequalities from episode one, we move to Kenya, where informal settlers have been particularly vulnerable during the pandemic. Is equality law in Kenya managing to protect these informal settlers? 
Here's Victoria Miandazi, advocate of the High Court of Kenya and law lecturer at the University of Embu. Equality law in Kenya aims to assess vulnerable groups in Kenya, particularly um, persons like informal settlers, through its uh, provisions that really emphasize on the priority to be given to vulnerable groups. With this COVID-19 crisis, most of the, of the measures that are put in place were to make sure that uh, the social and the economic part of the country reign smoothly. And hence, it required also an equality sensitive approach. However, we see that uh, there has been, we can say that it's more of a double-edged sword. At one end of the spectrum, we can see that uh, the government had its own fair share of failures as much as it programs were well-intended or initiatives intervention or interventions to curb the spread of COVID-19 were well-intentioned. Uh, they failed to apply an equality sensitive approach, prioritizing the needs of vulnerable groups, socioeconomic needs of vulnerable groups. But then at the end, other end of the spectrum, the courts have been quite vigilant to make sure that um, the, the government stays its path in terms of making sure that vulnerabilities are not intensified by applying the law and by applying equality provisions at that. And so we can see this check and checks, this checks and balances working particularly for vulnerable groups, but obviously not to the to the extent that uh, would be satisfying at to, at many levels. Uh, but at some level, um, it's admirable. These examples from Kenya, Hong Kong, and the UK reveal a mixed picture. In the UK, while the Equality Act was failing to meet its objectives, disabled people would have been in a worse position without it, and the urgency and widespread nature of the COVID-19 pandemic arguably helped to increase awareness of disabled people's rights. In Hong Kong, it's been a struggle to unpick intersecting crises and intersectional discrimination, leading to missed opportunities to protect the most vulnerable. And in Kenya, we see the courts keeping the government on track for the most part when it comes to protecting vulnerable groups. But what we've heard frequently throughout these examples is the idea that equality law wasn't working at its best even in normal times. We've heard a bit already about why this might be, but another pattern jumped out at me as I was scrolling back through the transcripts of the interviews we did with Marta Machado from the FGV Law School in Sao Paulo and Aaron Reeves, Associate Professor at the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. And his is a voice you haven't actually heard yet in this series. These are the quotes that caught my attention. The history of, of policy making around social security for larger families over the last decade is rooted in a set of assumptions. It was difficult to stabilize this law in a judiciary that had a very patriarchic mentality. Is rooted in a set of assumptions. Very patriarchic mentality. A set of assumptions. Patriarchic mentality. Patriarchic mentality. Set of assumptions. It dawned on me, perhaps naively at this stage, that those that create and enforce the laws and policies that are supposed to protect against inequalities don't exist independently of society. They live amongst us, and just like anybody else, they too can be subject to dominant, discriminatory ways of thinking that have permeated our societies over generations, and on an institutional level as well. This means, for example, that perfectly good constitutional provision and equality law could fail to be enforced. 
Cue the story of the lipstick lobby, as told by Marta Machado from the FGV Law School, Sao Paulo. The 1988 constitution uh, was, uh, was the democratic constitution enacted after 24 years of military dictatorship and around the, the, the drafting of this, this new constitution, we had a lot of civil uh, society mobilization. Uh, women specifically were, had a really strong uh, mobilization. Uh, they had an interesting story because they were called the Lipstick Lobby, which was uh, a name that first uh, the, the, the media at the time were maliciously uh, nicknaming the women as lip, Lipstick Lobby, but then they kind of resignified and used that to, to gain visibility. The Lipstick Lobby mobilised and worked hard to secure respect for women's rights in the Brazilian 1988 constitution. This was a huge victory, and you might be forgiven for thinking that that would be enough. Let's fast forward now to 2006. In 2006, we had a very important law, uh, the Maria da Penha law, which is a statute uh, to combat domestic violence, which is a, and it's a very innovative statute. It was very progressive. Again, this seems positive. This time, a progressive law to tackle domestic violence not pioneered by the lipstick lobby, but you could say a continuation of their legacy, perhaps. So what went wrong? It was difficult to stabilise this law in a judiciary that had a very patriarchic mentality and so was still like judging the new law and judging the cases without the new law mind frame. So this is where we are now with a very good law and with a lot of problems of enforcement. And structural issues in society can hold back gender equality too. And these have, inevitably, been made worse by the pandemic, a phrase we've heard so much already in this series, but that does not get less true. Yeah, I think think gender equality became... uh, more complicated after COVID. The other day we had, there was this slogan in the newspaper, we are three decades back because the number of women in the market economy, it's, it, it, we got to the same number we had three decades before. We should think that more structurally, it's very difficult. I used to say that, yeah, the Supreme Court has an important role to address substantive equality since we have a strong charter of social rights. So we have more, uh, we, 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 we have more legal opportunity to advance uh, measures uh, of social equality, but I think it's so structural that uh, that's really a challenge to any legal measure to advance uh, gender equality in Brazil. Aaron Reeves argues that social welfare policies and institutions in the UK operate on assumptions around particular groups. One of the big assumptions, I think, is a kind of distinction that often gets made between hardworking families and those that are on benefits. And the reason that that's a false assumption or false distinction is because at various points in our lives, all of us, uh, or almost all of us, rely on the welfare state to some degree. But there is, I think, another um, distinction that's really important here. And, and this is goes back, I think, a really long time back to the work of Thomas Malthus, 
And he has argued that one of the problems with social security per se, as a way of organizing society is that it actually runs the risk of creating per perverse incentives in which people are actually incentivized not to take care of themselves, not to work, not to put effort in to support themselves and their families. And in his view, that requires us to actually treat uh, those on social security in a kind of disgraceful way. We have to treat them as though it's a shameful thing to be on social security. And I think both of those assumptions have been critical to policymaking around social security during the last decade, and that those assumptions are still built in in many ways to the response to the pandemic from the government too. So if equality law, legislations and policies can't be severed from the context of the society in which they're operating, when we start thinking about potential improvements to equality law, we're going to have to think big. Join us for episode three, where our human rights experts from around the world will be doing just that. Only a constitutional reform is not enough to guarantee equality. We need to move beyond the individualised focus of anti-discrimination law. This podcast is part of a special series under the Exponential Inequalities Project. The project is led by Shreya Archre as the principal investigator of the British Academy Leverhulme Small Research Grant on Equality Law in Times of Crisis. The producer and presenter was me, Christy Calloway-Gale, assistant producers Monica Arango-Olaya, Gauri Pillay and Natasha Holcroft-Emmes. Transcripts were produced by Sarah Dobby and with music by Rosemary Allman. Thanks to Megan Campbell and Sandra Fredman for their generous feedback and guidance.